Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's my joke. What did one math book say to the other? I got problems. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from actress Gina Rodriguez, star of the TV show Jane the Virgin. Yes. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we speak with the great film director Mike Lee. His movie Mr. Turner just came out on DVD this week. Also coming out, film and TV star Joseph Gordon-Levitt practices selfie defense. We examine dictators' diets, and talk show legend Dick Cavett tells us how he got his guests to open up. A swift, pointed, excruciating kick in the shin bone. Works for us. Yep. And if that kind of amazing lineup sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in December. So cast your mind back to a time of Hanukkah gelt and peppermint sticks, uh. when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. We are speaking with Erin McCann. She is assistant news editor at The Guardian newspaper. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I have a bit of festive cheer for you this week, It's it being the Christmas season. Okay. Uh, Haven't gotten nearly enough of that lately. <laughs> <laughs> so last weekend, wandering the streets of Omaha, Nebraska, somebody came across a sheep just alone, wandering around. Oh. The sheep was taken to the Nebraska Humane Society wearing its Christmas sweater. And in Wait, the what? what? Yeah, yeah, I buried the lead there. Um, <laughs> so a sheep with a Christmas sweater was found wandering the street. Did it have like a little like old-fashioned with tinkling ice cubes on its hand and clearly <laughs> coming sheep. home late from the sheep office party? Sheep walking upright with its heels, one heel kicked off, stumbling down the street. What is going on? So somebody comes across the sheep and Nebraska's... Humane Society started telling newspapers and websites, hey, we have this sheep. We don't really know where it came from, and it's wearing a Christmas sweater. Uh, so that became news. Yeah. So this week I spoke to the people at the Nebraska Humane Society, and while I was on the phone with them, they got a phone call from a woman who said that she thought it might be her sheep. And I love the earnestness behind this because it might be. Yeah. You know? She's like, was it a turtleneck sweater? Or, oh, yeah, that's the one. There it is. Yes, that is her sheep. Uh, they were reunited on Tuesday evening. Why was he wearing a sweater? Yeah. She says she has dressed him up for the 4th of July and Halloween, and he will be getting a new outfit for New Year's Eve. Is it creepy to anyone also that a sheep wearing a sweater is basically like wearing the skin of another sheep? And you know what? That yeah. brings to mind silence of the lambs. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> and with that, Aaron McCann, <laughs> thank you for the small talk. <laughs> and now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. It is. First, the history part. This week, back in 1963, one man changed the way we look at sports. Truly. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Armchair quarterbacks, you owe your Sundays to Tony Verna. No, he wasn't a football coach. Verna was a TV football producer, and in 1963, he invented the instant replay. For two reasons. First, because football plays happened so fast, it was easy for TV announcers to miss the details. Verna was sick of watching amazing action happen on the field that announcers didn't even notice. But more importantly, on TV, the game was kind of boring. 
Furness says there was so much downtime that, quote, you could make a sandwich between plays. So in a televised college game between Army and Navy, he deployed a video system that would help him fill that downtime by showing plays again. And it turns out to be a thriller as Carl Stickway, number 16, quarterbacks the underdog Army team to new heights. It was Army. not a smooth debut. In fact, thanks to technical glitches, Verna only used his new device once in the fourth quarter to replay Army's final touchdown, after which confused viewers flooded CBS with so many phone calls, an announcer had to assure the TV audience that Army had not scored twice. Still, within a year, instant replay was a sports TV standard. As for Verna, he never made any money from his invention. But he did go on to an award-winning career, like directing the Live Aid broadcasts in 1985. So that was the history. Now it's time for the drink to serve along with it. I'm on the line with Al Sotak at the Franklin Mortgage and Investment Company, which, despite the name, is a bar. Uh, and it's in Philadelphia, where the 1963 Army-Navy game was played. Al, what cocktail did the story inspire you to make? So I did a cocktail that I, I hope kept some of our uh, blue-collar roots here in Philadelphia <laughs> represented. So you used Budweiser or Yingling? Yeah, well, I did use beer, actually, yeah. Just this last week, we had a guest bartender here, Nick Jarrett. He's an old friend of ours. And him and my partner, Colin Stern, sort of invented the term for what happens when you top a cocktail with beer. Okay. And they decided that they were going to call that blue collaring. Um, <laughs> I like and that. And so I decided that for, a, you know, a Philadelphia-inspired cocktail, particularly the instant replay at the uh, Army-Navy game, that I would blue collar this cocktail. I like it. I did a drink with acid phosphate, uh, which is an acid that you can balance against sugar. Wait, you just have that stuff lying around? Yeah, you can buy it. Uh, there's a company called extinctchemicals.com, and they'll sell it to you. Wow. It was a traditional ingredient in old sodas at the soda fountain. All right, well, tell me more. What are you going to do with it? So it's a, it's a teaspoon of acid phosphate, okay. um, a quarter ounce lemon juice, and then three quarters of an ounce uh, blackberry syrup. And we make that in-house here. It's real easy. Uh, one ounce Smith & Cross, which is a, a naval-inspired rum. Ah, there we go. Naval rum because it was an Army-Navy game. Right, and also because it's delicious. That too. Uh, one ounce of Rittenhouse bonded rye. And I guess, you know, it being bonded, it's sort of federal, so there's that. All right, so you, and Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia is kind of the fancy neighborhood there. Yeah, man. You know, back in the day, Rittenhouse was bottled and produced here, and it's a delicious rye. All right, and so you have that and the navel rum. So you, know, you just add all, all those ingredients in a tin, give them a good double shake, and then I put it on ice in a Collins glass and topped it with about three ounces of a bitter IPA. Wow, so you blue-collared it with an IPA. I blue-collared it with an IPA, yeah, that's right. And, and what is the name of the drink? I just called it the instant replay. Yeah. Well, the thing is that with acid phosphate and blackberry simple syrup, I doubt people are going to be able to replay this recipe at home. So <laughs> it'll, it'll be more like the week-long replay. Yeah, and Brendan, I also don't see a lot of old-school football dudes hanging out in front of the mm, game no. with a blackberry no. simple syrup <laughs> cocktail. I guess it does kind of offset the blue collar. Yeah. You know, the syrup gentrifies the beer. It's true. It's nice. Sounds tasty, though. And uh, folks, you can judge for yourself. The recipe is on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actor Gina Rodriguez. She won a Golden Globe for her starring role in the hit TV show Jane the Virgin, an adaptation of a Venezuelan telenovela relocated to Miami. Here she is to tell us about it and her list. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Gina Rodriguez, and I play Jane in the new CW dramedy called Jane the Virgin. Jane is a young girl studying to be a teacher with dreams of being a writer and goes to the gynecologist for a routine pap smear and gets accidentally artificially inseminated. Now, what? That's crazy. Like, there's no way that can happen. Well, for one, it actually is scarily plausible. And, you know, be careful when you go to the gynecologist next time. Kidding, but maybe not kidding. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of shows out there that when you stop to think about it and you break it down, you're like, this story is crazy. And we've been buying it for five, six, seven, eight seasons. So here's my list of shows that are so crazy, it just might work. So the first show on my list, the first artistic venture on my list, Breaking Bad. High school teacher that then runs a meth lab to cover his cancer bills. I mean, that's crazy. And he doesn't get caught? Come on now. I started getting into the show because my good friend Max Arcianega was crazy eight in the first four episodes. So he was like, you have to watch this because I'm in this show. And within the, I would say, third, fourth episode where he's tied up and about to get killed, I was like, this is amazing. So I said, just let you go then. Just unlock you and adios, huh? I don't see what real choice you have. If it's between that and cold-blooded murder, the moment I do, are you gonna stick me with that broken piece of plate? Poor Max, sorry Max. What ends up allowing us to fall so in love with these storylines that are so absurd is because of our love for the characters. Adorable little Brian Cranston is so sweet, he looks so sweet. You know, trying to help his family and trying to protect his family and the acting was just so phenomenal from the jump that you fall into the world with them. I'm so sorry. Finally, I get to teach a whole lesson all by myself. My number two is Avenue Q, the amazing Broadway musical, a bunch of puppets talking about porn. Internet is really, really great. Or porn. Actually, now I decided the only way I'm going to discuss with my children when I have them about life is through puppets. Because there I am in the crowd looking up at these puppets cuss at me and tell me about STDs. And I was like, this is genius. And I'm obsessed with it. I watched the show like six times. The internet is for porn. What are you doing? Why you think the net was born? Born, born, born. You know, I, I was trying to figure out how it worked while I was watching it. How did they get away with this? I think the music element to it, just, it's so catchy. Of course, the nostalgia of bringing us back to our childhood brings you in. But also, it's almost easier to digest these really serious conversations they're having because it's coming from the mouth of, like, a furry green animal. Oh, all right, I'll wear a condom. Of course, Mr. Fluffy thing. Like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Was that Mary Poppins? That was also so crazy. Like Mary Poppins was ridiculous. 
For number three, I just I want to throw out a few just people can talk about, and then I'll talk about one. But the TV show Bewitched, you know, this hidden witch, and nobody knew besides her husband, who was like totally cool with it. Alvin and the Chipmunks, chipmunks that sing that are owned by humans. There was nothing creepy about the fact that these chipmunks were only wearing sweaters and no pants. Um, but the third one, I think I would probably make Walking Dead. What I think is crazy is that they can come up with a show centered around zombies and then last three or four seasons, four, five, or six of zombies. It's like the apocalypse. There's nothing else that's going to happen. You can't think like, oh, next season, it's going to be changed up. It's not going to be any zombies anymore. It's like, no, it's going to be zombies. And it's going to be zombies again and again and again. And I still want more. For me, I specifically love the background extras of the zombies. The people that stumble around and do such a committed job. I want to be on The Walking Dead so bad. Yeah. Jane the Zombie. The guest list from Gina Rodriguez. She stars in Jane the Virgin. It wraps up its first season this week. Catch it Mondays at 9 on The CW. All right, coming up, we chat with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and British director Mike Lee talks about the art of making making art artful. That actually makes sense. It does. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel this week's conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. We should remind you this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in December, and it's a great one. Later, actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt tells us about the TV show he creates with the help of potentially everyone on Earth, and talk show legend Dick Cavett answers your etiquette questions, kind of. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Mike Lee. He's made over a dozen movies, including the art house hits Happy Go Lucky and Topsy Turvy. Secrets and Lies, one of my favorites. Also great. They've earned him six Oscar nominations for writing and directing. He's also known for guiding actors to riveting emotional performances. And his latest historical drama, Mr. Turner, which came out on DVD this week, is no exception. His star, Timothy Spall, won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival, portraying the title character, the great and very gruff 19th century British painter J.M.W. Turner. Here's a clip in which Turner admires art at an exhibition, grunting all the while. Good morning, Mr. Turner. Martin's Billy Gussie. Good day, you, Delighted Billy. you could join us. Damn fine spectacle this year, Billy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Constable. Turner. Mm-hmm. There you go. Lee is known for his unique filmmaking technique, in which he and his actors improvise scenes for months before he writes a final shooting script. When we spoke in December, I asked what specifically makes for a great Mike Lee-style actor. It is specific. I mean, in the first place, it really only works with what I would really define in a very straightforward way as character actors. That's to say, people who don't just play themselves, who are not motivated simply by narcissism, people who are really (laughs) excited by and can do all kinds of different people, real people like the people out there in the street, actors who are really motivated to do that and are excited by that. Um, It only works with actors who have a sense of humour, It only works with intelligent actors, and let's face it, not all actors are intelligent. (laughs) And it only works with sophisticated actors. And there you go. Well, let's turn from general questions about your technique to this 
specific film. Why did you pick this artist to make a film about? I've always been a great fan of Turner's work. but So I've got the notion of doing a, something to do with this very cinematic painter mm-hmm. just after we made that film Topsy Turvy, which is also set in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And when I started to investigate Turner, the personality, the man, this complex sometimes curmudgeonly, sometimes oh, yes. profoundly honest, sometimes scruffy. I mean, a really interesting character. I just thought, what a great character, and how extraordinary that this guy painted all this sublime spiritual stuff. So it just seemed like yeah. uh, a good subject for a movie. I went and did some research, and I came upon this quote where you admit to having both a, quote, bourgeois suburban side and a, quote, anarchist bohemian side. And Turner also pretty much leads a double life, almost along those lines. To what extent is he you? (laughs) He isn't me. However, there are themes that run through all my films, which is to do with um, conformity and non-conformity, being an insider and an outsider. Because indeed, you know, I grew up in the frightfully respectable... I was a teenager in the 50s. And we all, of course, let our hair down and escaped from our highly respectable parents' lives with their obsession with order because of the hell they'd been through in World War Two. So in a way, um, this look at Turner, who is both socially an insider and an outsider, striving for recognition, which he, of course, absolutely had and, and acceptance, but at the same time is completely his own man, mm. I suppose in some way, subconsciously, is consistent with my ongoing preoccupations. Do you find him... Uh admirable or is this a cautionary tale because in a lot of ways he hurts a lot of people around him leading that double life he does i mean the truth is i take a fairly objective view of it i mean a compassionate view i hope you know he is what he is i think the whole thing is not to make a film that judges moralistically it leaves you i leave you the audience to consider what you feel about this guy. Well, as an audience member, let me ask you, though, what do you, how do you, as somebody who has that conflict in you, what do you learn from this guy about how to or not to maybe balance those two sides? I don't know the answer to that. Huh. I think um, that's a question with no answer, really. One f- uh, final question about the film before we ask you our two uh, standard questions that we ask everyone. There's a, a scene that leapt out at me, and I think a lot of people, probably because it's the funniest scene in the movie, involves this young, rich snob who's a big fan of Turner's and just obsequiously overpraises and overanalyzes his work. And I suspect the scene is informed by some firsthand experience with critics. No, it doesn't at all. I mean, actually, this is, of course, the great and famous Victorian critic John Ruskin, uh, just portrayed here as a very young man. And Ruskin was... An extraordinary, I mean, he's a great critic and sure. a great supporter of Turner, but at the same time, he was an extraordinary <laughs> prude. And, um, and what we've done is dramatize with a slight tongue in cheek, we've dramatized the way we think this guy was. And some of what he says are actually what Ruskin actually said. You know? but, I, but you do take on that particular scene with what seems like an awful lot of glee. Absolutely. It was a gas to do. Yeah, it was a joy and delight, you know. I'm trying to get you to dish on, on terrible critical responses that you've had in the past. No, actually, it's very interesting you say that because it never occurred to me. 
this is really interesting. It never occurred to me for a split second that it would be taken as a general statement about critics. And when we showed it in Cannes, there was a, a very distinct, there is a very distinguished French film critic who took great umbrage and thought, you know, thought it was an attack on critics. And I was amazed. It never occurred to me, actually, because Ruskin is such a major figure that all we were concerned was that we were dealing with Ruskin, actually. This is what happens when you screen a film. The first people to see it are critics, and you have a character who's a critic. They all laser-like focus in on that one guy. There you go. I'm oh, sorry. Um, all right, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask? Uh, I haven't thought about that one. What, what question should you not ask at a dinner party? Yes. I, you know, I mean, there are probably a zillion things that really you'd better not ask me to dinner party. <laughs> things of a very private nature. I mean, I'm not prepared to share with you I'm precisely sure. um, what techniques and in what order I use my hands when I wipe my <laughs> I mean, Well, let's I, assume you that you're at a nice enough party that no one's going to ask you that question. Well, I don't know. You didn't specify what kind of party it was going to be. <laughs> Maybe but the question. What question am I thoroughly fed up with always being asked? Sure, that's a, sort of a version thereof. Yes, and I'm afraid to have to tell you that that question is: tell us how do you do what you do with the actors? Oh man, well, can you explain your technique to us? And, and the point about that is because I've been doing this work since 1965, I therefore have been asked this question any number of million times, and I yeah. sit there. I'm sorry. And every time I get asked it, I think, bloody hell, I'm 71 years of age, well into the 21st century, and I'm still being asked this <laughs> same old... Thing. And the interesting thing is this, actors who work with me, they have a great experience, it's life-changing for them, they go over, and then, of course, what they realise is they're lumbered with them getting asked the same question <laughs> endlessly, forever and ever, and they are sick of it. You have passed on the plague to them. Yes, exactly. I'm sorry, it is, it's such a unique way of working, first of all, and second of all, the audiences that each of your interviewers are speaking to may not have heard about it, that's the problem. Of course, of course, we know that, but you're asking, you know, if the question is, what question do I groan at having been asked, oh, that yes. is it. I'm sorry to contribute not at all, not at all. To your pain. Here is our, our second question. Which it's more of a demand, really. Tell us something we don't know. Well, actually, here's the thing. It's not a question of what you don't know, but it's something that you may be surprised about my own take on it. Crop circles, generally taken to be hoaxes, things that people make. Yeah. These, are, these are like patterns that have been pressed into cornfields that you can only see from above for those who don't know. Yes, or other um, crops. Some say it's supernatural. Well, this is the thing. I am not a religious person. In fact, I'm a non-believer. I'm not a hippy-dippy. But I have experienced these things. They do occur quite a lot in the southwest of England. You go into them, you have a definite feeling of something very different. You're Mobile doesn't work. You know, there's an energy you experience, all of what? that. And they are extraordinarily sophisticated in their, the way they're laid into the ground and the way they sit in the landscape. And I began from a position of, like everybody else, ordinary cynicism about I, it. And, I'm, I'm certainly a skeptic. I was a skeptic, but the ones that are hoaxes that people sort of go in and make... Mm. Um, you can tell the difference immediately. They're just not in the same league. And the most remarkable thing about it, in my view, is that it's 
remains a matter of total cynicism for the general public, in, <laughs> including in the UK. Papers always report it with a high degree of sceptical cynicism, and as though it's just... Um, You're like, here's finally something that I can believe in, and you guys are finally being cynical about it. That's right. So there you go. <laughs> Mike Lee, his new film, Mr. Turner, hits theaters December 19th. And Brendan, Mike told me he tries to go visit crop circles whenever he hears one has appeared. All right. But farmers are getting so sick of people traipsing through their crops that they often mow down the circles before (laughs) people can get to them. So basically to keep people off their lawns, they eliminate their lawns. (laughs) Great logic. It's a little extreme. (laughs) You know, they're English farmers. They're irascible. All right, and speaking of corn and stuff, it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. So, Rico, a new book comes out in England this month, and its premise is basically that evil needs to eat. Which sounds like the logline of a horror movie. Well, that's actually not far from the truth. Oh, no. One thing I learned from this book, Idi Amin, the despot who ruled Uganda in the 70s, was rumored to engage in cannibalism. And when he was confronted about it, he said, I don't like human flesh. It's too salty. Ah. Yeah. Apparently he encouraged the rumor because it made him look more intimidating. He succeeded. That's right. Anyway, a new book written by Victoria Clark and Melissa Scott examines the eating habits of tyrants around the world and through the ages. And it even includes recipes of some of their favorite dishes. It's called Dictator's Dinners, A Bad Taste Guide to Entertaining Tyrants. And when I spoke with them, I asked them about the bad taste part. Is it really appropriate to talk about dictators' dining habits? It is in bad taste, yes, um, because it includes recipes, which if you serve them up to your friends at a supper party or something, some people might want to vomit before they even start, just at the thought of eating what dictators uh, ate. You know, could it be said that you are somehow maybe lessening the gravity of the crimes of these people by humanizing them? On the one hand, we don't want to humanize them, but we do want to cut them down to a a human size because, after all, as I say in the foreword, the line between man and monster is a thin one, so it just needs to be remembered that they're not superhumans. They've got terrible digestive systems or, Mm. you know, obsessions with the size of their rice grains or idiocies like that. Can you pick one of the recipes you found most interesting and tell me what it tells us about that person? Well, I've cooked samak, mazgouf samak, which was Saddam Hussein's um, uh, favorite dish, which is basically carp, which is caught in on the Tigris. There are fish tanks that line the the river Tigris, um, and you can pick your carp and it it will be cooked for you. And it's a sort of very traditional, humble, uh, simple dish. And Mm. I think that was uh, Saddam Hussein's was harking back to the Iraqi people and his roots. One of the patterns that emerges in this book is uh, a taste for kind of peasant food, common people's food, which isn't surprising when you think about where a lot of these all men came from. But it is surprising when you think of the heights they reached. You know, you think they would want to have these opulent dinner parties. Well, Tito, for example, Yugoslavia's dictator, interesting, he had a very, very humble childhood and seems to have consisted of eating an awful lot of slabs of pig fat. Mm. Um, in, in the mountains in Croatia was where he came from. And then, of course, when once he came to power, he loved nothing better than entertaining in huge style with fireworks and only the best of every food aboard his uh, presidential yacht. 
And very, very nice. Sophia Loren and all sorts of stars of stage and screen would join him there. Sophia Loren even helped him cook. So he became a real bon viveur from his humble background, but, but never lost his taste for the odd snack of pig fat. Another interesting snack you write about is Malawi's Hastings Banda, who kept crispy fried worms in his pants pockets? Yes, he'd um, hand um, these crispy fried worms, the Mapani worms, out to the children as he walked around as a treat for the children. These are actually a delicacy, apparently, in uh, Africa. I have a South African friend who's raves about them. And then Mussolini, one of his favorite dishes was a, a bowl of raw chopped garlic. That's right. Um, very, very strange. You'd think, being being an Italian, that he'd want some very, very nice pasta or some delicious cooked lamb or something like that. No, that was all he wanted, a bowl of raw garlic drizzled with a bit of oil and sprinkle of salt. And then, of course, his poor wife, Rachele, just refused to sleep in the same room with him <laughs> after that because he stank to high heaven, I suppose. And, and it could maybe cause digestive problems. Another theme that emerges in this book, Hitler had flatulence famously and then Gaddafi as well. Hitler was very, very afflicted. 28 different medicines he was given for his flatulence. And of course, they didn't really work because they sort of, on the one hand, he was constipated. On the other hand, he was flatulent. But uh, he thought that his turning vegetarian would help the situation. But I think anybody in their right mind knows that it could easily have the opposite effect. (laughs) That's right. Another pattern that emerges in this book is the idea of purity. Was it Kim Jong-il who had every grain of rice inspected? That's right. We found with a lot of them, as they aged, they become more and more obsessed with how they're going to preserve themselves. And it becomes even Mm. more shocking, really, how they're refusing to let their people eat anything while themselves, as you say, growing rice of a certain size just for themselves. As one um, psychologist has put it, this is food for, for... a god, not for a human being. You know, they're so obsessed with that purity. But also uh, a kind of paranoia, you know, that you find with someone like Ceausescu who ends up drinking uh, fruit juices through a straw and never accepting anything in any foreign banquet just in case it's poisoned and or, or could make him ill. The purity instinct seems to me like they're trying to control the one thing they can't control, which is the ravages of time and, I and, think that's and right. being human. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's right, just to try and stave off the moment when they when they fall apart. What got you started on this book? It's kind of a macabre topic. Well, I'd been thinking about it for quite a while. I was given a book um, on meals that Tito had been eating, and um, we had a dinner party, uh, Victoria and I, and um, we started talking about it, and it evolved from there over dinner. And then we decided to have business meetings in the pub from then on. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a, a great way to get a pro- launch a project. No, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I bet you the dinner parties diminished in number when it came to the fried worms and ground turkey bone <laughs> soup days, right? <laughs> yeah, we're not so popular now. I can't think why. Well, you can invite me over the next time you, you know, actually Stalin's chicken seemed pretty interesting. So maybe if well, I'm in town. Well, don't be too sure. I tried that. It's pretty grim. Oh, is it? It's very labor intensive. I know it's labor, yeah. but it had like 
like cinnamon and marigold seeds and, and chicken, and it seemed kind of potentially delicious. Yeah, but also a ton of walnuts in it, um, which can be quite bitter unless you take off the skins. And I really had made a disgusting concoction the other day of that. All right. Well, I, I may then reserve my right to bring my own food taster in keeping with the tradition of the dictators. Or just uh, your own food. That's right. I'll have them eat that for me. Or I'll just bring a stealth burrito from America. Exactly. Much safer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming by. That's brilliant. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. The book is called Dictator's Dinners, A Bad Taste Guide to Entertaining Tyrants, and it won't come out in the U.S. till spring, but if you can't wait that long for Franco's paella recipe, you can buy the book from the publisher's website, gilgamesh-publishing.co.uk. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt puts everyone on the planet to work for him, and the great Dick Cavett answers listeners' etiquette questions. You have listeners? What a gentleman. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In just a second, film star Joseph Gordon-Levitt describes his inspiring TV variety show. It's just like Nike. Actually, it's a lot more inspiring than that. Totally. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is legendary TV talk show host Dick Cavett. On his own, The Dick Cavett Show, his interviews with celebrities ranging from Gore Vidal to Jimi Hendrix were and are renowned for their humor and intelligence. He was also a regular columnist for The New York Times, and he recently published a book of those columns called Brief Encounters, Conversation, Magic Moments, and Assorted Hijinks. And Dick, welcome. It's nice to be here, as they say. It's great to have you. Welcome back to the show. I want to talk about this book, which, you know, I have to read a book every week for our show. Gosh. This one was actually fun to read. We are a regular Michiko Kakutani. How do you do that? <laughs> I am Michiko Kakutani. Have you ever seen us in the same place? Not without makeup. <laughs> so this is, this is actually a good question, though. You have interviewed countless authors over the years. Did you always read their books? And should hosts be expected to? I Naively, when I started, among the things I didn't know, which was very virtually everything about how the hell do you suddenly find yourself in life responsible for filling 90 minutes of television airtime on a network without any idea what you're doing. Uh, One of my naivetes was um, thinking you had to read the guest books. Mm. And the seventh time I read a 400-page book and had seven minutes with the person on the air, uh, I realize you don't have to read an entire book. First chapter, last chapter, and a couple good reviews. Yeah, I think Larry King was on the right track. You can think of enough things to say on the subject mm. uh, in most cases. But don't you find... Uh, Although this... I must tell you that Mort Saul said once, he had a book out, he went on Larry King's show, and he claims that Larry said... I read certain passages in your book all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thanks, Larry. I'm tempted to go right to our questions so we could have cleverly avoided talking about the book. (laughs) Oh, well, that's But but I don't want to do that because I really enjoyed this. What do you mean the book Brief Encounters? Yes. Have Uh you heard of it? It was written by Dick Cavett. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask, you know, in these columns you talk about Arthur Godfrey, Jack Parr, and some other television hosts who you Mm -hmm. knew and admired. But as a fan of your writing, I'm curious, who are your writing mentors? I don't know. Uh, the only thing I am aware of is that I had two parents and a step-parent, all of whom were excellent writers. Mm-hmm. My dad's and mother's letters that I've got, they were just brilliant. I never set out to be a writer, but I was told, this kid can write, 
And freshman year at Yale, which I spent in paralysis of flunking out, <laughs> I, I handed in my first paper to Cecil Y. Lang. Your professor. And he wrote back on it, you have very little to learn about writing. Wow. Thought, What's he talking about? So you said, great, give me my sheepskin so I can stop paying yeah, you. Yeah, let me out of here. He said modesty, on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, we need to teach you about. Well, so... You obviously are qualified to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. You have listeners? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to pause there. I, I had a glottal stop. You have listeners who, who an, yeah. ask questions, as I recall, from a, a former adventure here. That's yes. right. Yeah. I think someone said, should uh, celery and olives be eaten with the fingers? And I said, no, the fingers should be eaten separately. <laughs> <laughs> you do dispense great dinner party wisdom. You've got to live up to that now, Dick. No way. <laughs> All right. Here's our first question. It is Katie, and she writes via Facebook, how do you tell someone you've known for a while that they're calling you the wrong name. My first name is Catherine, but I've always gone by Katie. Now I have two different people calling me Kate. Help, please. Hmm. I think probably the thing to do about that is to just be very subtle hmm. and say, Marsha, or whatever her name is, her friend <laughs> is, my name is either Kate or Katie. Which one is correct? You challenge them. And I think within the next moments, the truth might come out. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, like a little quiz. Oh, put them on the spot. Or you can say, if her name's Marsha, I don't call you Martha, you dumb butt. <laughs> <laughs> that's polite. That's, the, uh, that's a that polite etiquette right. response. Was there ever a moment where you've called someone by the wrong name on TV? Yes, by the wrong first name. Hmm. And a thousand volts went through my body as I realized it, and they looked hurt and puzzled. Who hmm. was it? Well, I figured they could take it. They were president of the United States. and uh, <laughs> Jill Clinton. Not really. You know yeah. that great British joke about the man at the British elegant party and who's talking to another man, and he thinks he knows him, but he can't be sure, and he finally desperately says, uh, well, how's your wife? And he says, so, still queen. <laughs> yeah, don't be in that situation. Right. We don't want that. So, Katie, somewhere in there is some wisdom for you. I think so. Uh, we have another question. This one comes from Jeff in Lake Ozark, Missouri. And Jeff writes... I told Jeff never to write in when I'm on the air, but... <laughs> he did bad. it anyway. He didn't listen. He has a good reason, though. Check this out. Yeah. He writes, every time I see my friend John Carney, he tells me about the time he was a writer for the Dick Cavett Show. That's right. How do I get him to stop being such a name dropper? Signed, Jeff Carr, guy who knows radio personality and former writer for Dick Cavett, John <laughs> Carney. <laughs> John Carney is a name to conjure with. Uh, I'll tell you what to do with him. Ask okay. him what happened to the $20 I lent <laughs> Still cheesed about that, are you, Dick? That's right. You got any stories that you want to embarrass John Carney with, right? Now, that would be a great way to get back at him for name dropping. Well, he's bald. <laughs> and once in the office, he leaned against another bald man. They put their heads together and made it <laughs> for themselves. Yeah, have you been right. waiting years to tell that joke? Uh, yes. Yeah. All right. There you go, Jeff. Use that to your whatever advantage. Uh, here's John in Pasadena, California. John writes, how do you sidle into a two-person conversation that's in progress and shows no signs of stopping. Because really, seriously, I have something to add, writes John. Lurking at the edge of the conversation is awkward for me. How do you get, get yourself into and join and make it a three-person conversation? Yeah. yeah. Turn to one of the male members and say your fly's open. <laughs> you know, just be, in other words, 
very tactful. Mm. Yeah, and then, obviously. And clapping your hand over the two mouths of the two other people <laughs> sometimes provides an opening. Yeah. <laughs> they really they want to listen at that point. All right. They're hard John, questions, I will say. All right. Well, here's another hard one. This one comes from Christina in Los Angeles. Christina writes, what is the most tactful way to respond if your significant other is teasing you about work in front of your colleagues and you do not find it funny? Mm. This happened to me recently at a dinner party with two other couples we work with. A laugh at my expense is fine while with friends, but I don't know if it's very supportive of my partner while we are socializing as professionals. Being, in other words, sort of bad-mouthed at the same table in front of others yeah. by your significant other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, Aristotle speaks of this. Does um, he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't say Onassis. Yeah. Uh, what I would do would be to be sure that I'm seated straight across the table from this unpleasant person because a swift, pointed excruciating kick in the shin bone <laughs> will often shut them up. Your, All right. your advice is very physical today. You want to clap your hands over people's mouths and kick them? Well, I'm a body person. <laughs> I've always <laughs> said that about you, Dick. Clearly. Yeah. This book's mostly pictures, actually, brief encounters. <laughs> yeah, and football plays. That's the body mm-hmm. of the book. All right. <laughs> that might have been your first instinct, Christina, is to kick your partner, but and here we have confirmation. You were right. Yes. Just kick. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, just, just yeah, hurt just them. so you can hear the bone crack. That's sure. right. Oh, there's another. Th- oh, there's a quote from Shakespeare you can use. Okay. Six and stones may break my bones, but well, <laughs> right. You know, people Dick. think that was uh, think that was Shakespeare. It was actually Marlowe. Mm. So it's was uh, it Marlowe? Yeah. yeah. It's always credited to Shakespeare. There's an ongoing scholarly battle. Well, you know, the great Robert Benchley, unknown to anyone under thirty, probably now. <laughs> Wonderful that, humorist. Benchley cleared that up in a rather serious essay. Uh, he said that it has finally been shown. The plays of William Shakespeare were not written by William Shakespeare at all, but by someone else of the same name. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the plot thickens. Clever. Dick Cavett, we're out of time. Thank you for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, I'm just getting started here. Dick Cavett's new book is called Brief Encounters, Conversations, Magic Moments, and Assorted Hijinks. It's available right now. Go get it. And folks, if you know someone behaving in a manner worthy of a metaphorical kick to the shins, I do. Email us. Hey, now. And we'll have someone of note address the issue. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. That was rude. <laughs> Actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt's best known for starring in hit films like Looper, Inception, and 500 Days of Summer, but he's also the creative force behind an unusual show for the cable channel Pivot. It's called Hit Record on TV, and every episode features a bunch of segments exploring a theme. The catch, the show is largely produced by an online community of people he's never met in person. Through his website, Hit Record, Joseph and other artists propose segment ideas to which anyone can contribute audio, video, music, writing, what have you. Then he and his crew curate and weave together the contributions into a high-speed variety show. A box set of the first season just came out. When I met Joseph at the Hit Record office, I first asked why a guy who works with the best artists in Hollywood wanted to collaborate with strangers. The truth is, I think there's tons of great artists all over the world that don't necessarily have the opportunity to be here in Hollywood. You know, the established entertainment industry is sort of an exclusive clique, and I'm very fortunate to get to work inside of that clique. 
but that doesn't mean there's not lots of other people that I want to work with. A lot of other people. Let me, let's, let me take an example. There's this guy, Saint Maker, I believe his name is. Yeah. He's an older gentleman, first of all. He's not the kind of person you'd expect to collaborate on. He's got like a beard. He lives in Texas. You're right. Uh, he's a great writer. Is actually his, his primary contributions are, are writing. He's called Saint Maker. There's a little piece where he explained his name on the episode regarding trash. He digs through trash and he makes these sculptures of saints. You know, so that's like 30 seconds on the show. It's just this guy who's like, oh, I'll tell you what trash means to me. What did you think his motivation is for being on the show? I mean, and broadening that out, what is, have you found that there is kind of a common thing that unites the people that really want to contribute to this? Sure, well, the name of it, Hit Record, is sort of a turn of phrase that I started saying to myself 10 years ago now. And it was at a time in my life when, um, you know, I grew up working as an actor when I was a kid. And then I quit for a couple years and I went to college. And then when I wanted to start up again, I couldn't get a job. And it was depressing. <laughs> but I realized, and I think this is something a lot of actors go through. You know, when you're an actor, you have to wait for someone to give you a job before you can do your art. And I realized then that wasn't gonna work for me. I couldn't be relying on other people. And so the record button became this sort of symbol for me, the, the red circle. It's like, go, go do it. Exactly, it's, it's just like Nike. But that, that's, that's exactly it, get started. That's the hardest part, is, is pushing the button. And, and because you have all these voices in your head saying like, no, you're not an artist. What do you have to contribute? Do you think the people that are contributing, they're kind of people that have been in a similar position, maybe? Yes, to answer your question specifically, that's exactly it. I think that most people that come to our site are people that want to make stuff and want to be a part of a community of other people that are encouraging them to do that. Because oftentimes on the internet, it's more a culture of sort of, look at me, look at me, my thing, my thing, and it's competitive. There's something though, there's the flip side of this that I can imagine is, must be really tough for you, given what you just said, is that, what, I mean, if you've got somebody in this community that is there because they wanna express themselves and wants to get out there and collaborate, but they keep contributing and it's just not good, what do you do? That's, that's a great question. Um, the truth is, and this, this is honest, the people who are really dedicated and who contribute often get on the show. They generally do. We make so many requests and there's a real wide range of skill level required. Some of the requests just require you to, you know, talk into your webcam and, and give us, you, you know, your own unique insight. So there's no like sad person <laughs> sitting there I'm going, sure. come on. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. And do I feel for that person? Of course. I also though, you know, it's, it's an interesting blend. In, in a one way, the way we're making our show is really different than conventional show business. And in another way, it's very much built on conventional show business. That's what I grew up in. I grew up going to audition after audition after audition. Did that kind of blow your mind? It's like, even though I'm trying to get away from the Hollywood thing, there is an actual underlying system that makes sense. That works, absolutely. Well, I love working on movies. <laughs> How I try to direct, hit record is, is based on what I've seen. Like I just got to work with uh, Robert Zemeckis and he's enormously collaborative. He'll oftentimes, when we're starting to work out a scene, I like this phrasing actually that he'll use. He'll say, here's what I know. I know the scene has to start this way. I know the camera has to start here, blah, 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 blah. And then he'll say, here's what I don't know. And people will start throwing in their two cents. 
Um, something interestingly, I was talking to a guy from the Online News Association, and he specifically mentioned Hit Records website as an example of an online community that is somehow magically without trolls. <laughs> For those who don't know, this would be you know people who are negative commenters. And I mean, are you actually policing comments, or is this a naturally occurring phenomenon, and why? We don't. Yeah, we don't police or like delete anybody's comments. Yeah. So why don't people do that? I don't know, it'd be like walking into a kindergarten class and like being a you know, like who would do that? It would just, I don't even think it would be satisfying. I think part of the reason why trolls can be trollish is because they know they're in company of other trolls and so they're comfy on YouTube. Um, opening shot of the opening episode is you coming out on stage, you have a camera with you, you shoot yourself, you shoot the audience. The audience is encouraged to take out their cell phones and shoot each other. There are cameras in the audience. Everybody's pointing cameras at each other. I can almost guarantee you that an older person looks at that and it's like, this is the end of culture. It's just everybody's shooting themselves. It's like selfie culture, you know? Right. Defend it. Uh, my defense would be that, you know, back hundreds of years ago, not everyone was literate. In fact, a, a small minority of people could read and write. And I would argue it's much better if everybody can read and write because reading and writing is a huge part of being a modern human being and able to express yourself. Well, nowadays it's additional technologies that allow us to express ourselves and they have to do with these electronic devices. They're cameras and microphones and internet connections and everyone should and can use them and it's good that they use them. I agree there's plenty of narcissistic, superficial nonsense that goes on on various social networks, but I don't know if that, like I had this conversation with my mom, we were actually talking about a um, movie that I made, Don John, and there's a point in the story where a guy uses Facebook to find a girl, and I was saying to her, isn't it problematic that on Facebook people quantify their relationships. You're either single or you're with someone or whatever. There's, you know, you have X number of friends. And it's all quantified and isn't that a problem? And my mom's response was, it was always that way. It was very clearly defined. You were going steady or you weren't going steady. And it was just as quantified. The shortcomings that selfie culture makes evident have always been there. But the opportunities that new communication technology offers means that more and more of our society can express themselves. And the more perspectives that are expressed, the better. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, host and co-creator of the variety show Hit Record on TV. A box set of the first season is out now. The second season launches June 12th. All right, and that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, folks. Next week, among other delights, we chat with Carol Spinney, a.k.a. the voice of Big Bird, and Danish filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg talks about the vicissitudes of fate. Because those two pieces just belong together. That's right. Jackson Musker produced the Dinner Party Download. Nina Patak's our associate producer. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Jeff Peters engineered. And our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where, among other things, you'll find pictures of Rico in a leopard print slanket. That's right. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Bon appetit.